Find other great podcasts like this one at podmoth.network. And welcome to Crime and Spirits, your new favorite true crime and cocktail podcast. I'm your host, Bree. And I'm your other host, Suze. We're best friends who are obsessed with true crime, and we love a good-themed cocktail. So, we took our two favorite things and turned them into a podcast. Every Sunday, we release a new episode covering a different case or topic of interest. I'm the resident bartender here at Crime and Spirits, so every time we get together, I mix up a drink that ties into the episode in some way, shape, or form, and then I teach you how to make one for yourself. That way, you can sip right along with us. We like to keep things conversational around here, so expect some tangents on occasion, as well as some cursing here and there. Think of us as a cross between Dateline and Girls' Night. So, come hang out with us every week while we learn a little something new together. We love to chat with you about whatever, really, but mostly true crime. You better buckle up, Buttercup. And sip tight. Let's get on with the show. Woo! Hey everyone, welcome to Crime and Spirits. My name is Bree. And I'm Suze. Thanks so much for being here. We're so happy to have you. We're happy to be here, by the way. Also that. <laughs> we need it. We need to have a good discussion and some cocktails today. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's been a week. It sure has. And this is why, before we get into things today, we actually have a really quick little review shout out to do. Over on Apple Podcast, Hamburger Helpful One wrote, and I quote, Really stands out from all the other true crime podcasts. This one is way more thrilling. It reminds me of watching weird ghost docs and unsolved mystery docs on the couch after school. I don't know if you know what I mean. If that's your kind of thing, definitely give this podcast a try. We do know what you mean. I totally and get I it. I love that. I love that comparison. That is like very high praise for Honestly, me. Honestly, <laughs> I can't even begin to express how I felt reading that for the first time. It truly brought me to... A very emotional state <laughs> that was just amazing and quite a compliment and thank you so much for your incredibly kind words you are truly appreciated as are the rest of you but you guys know already if you want a shout out you got to leave a review so yes. if you want to press pause really quick and take care of that that's fine yes and then come we're back totally and join okay us. with that <laughs> <laughs> okay so let's get into today's show we're talking cults this October over here at Crime and Spirits. So you may remember last week we went over the basics of cults, what they are, how you can recognize if you're in one and why people might join in the first place. Because that has always been my question. <laughs> right. Just why? And, and how? Yes. How does it get to points like what we're going to talk about today? Exactly. <laughs> It's a very fascinating little deep dive. So this week, we're going to get a bit more specific, and we're going to dive into the life and crimes of cult leader David Koresh. He was the leader of the Branch Davidians, an apocalyptic cult that was originally founded in 1955. You may remember from last week that apocalyptic cults, aka doomsday cults, are groups that believe that the end of the world is imminent and that their group will be fundamental in the transformation of society. So in examples we've seen already, Manson, they were going to be a part of the new world order. They were going to be the survivors. They Mm -hmm. were going to craft a new world. Yeah. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. A lot of the, uh, like the Seekers, for example, I think we went over last week, they were looking to get 
off the planet because it was yes. going to get destroyed and s- start a new race elsewhere. So this is kind of their whole vibe. And the Branch Davidians under David's leadership were no exception. Things got real weird. Like, whoa. And then weird eventually escalated into violence and abuse. And we don't like any of that. So here's your warning. David Crash was not a good man, not by any means. This episode will involve the discussion of sexual coercion, gun violence, physical abuse, and pedophilia. We understand if you decide that this episode might not be for you. No judgments here. These topics can be tough to talk about, but it's important that these incidents are still part of the conversation because we would like to try to prevent something like this from happening again. Correct. (laughs) Cults can be dangerous and arming yourself with knowledge about them can possibly help yourself or maybe even someone you love. And just as a general rule, please keep in mind that the majority of topics we discuss here are sensitive in nature and not suitable for all listeners. And we also curse a lot. Yeah, just a (laughs) smidge. Now, let's mix up some cocktails because we need to dive on into crazy cult land and get this show on the road. Yeah. So last week I mentioned that we were going to just go full on fall with our cocktails because really, how do you tie cocktails with cults? Right. (laughs) I don't know. It's hard enough with crime sometimes. Right. So I decided we're just going to take advantage of our wonderful quote unquote time of year that we're having, which for Mm -hmm. us just means damp and chilly. Yeah. Or 90 degree weather, depending on how either or the weather's feeling that day. So where did our drink this week come from? It's a pumpkin spice old fashioned, in case you were wondering. Mm -hmm. It all started with the pumpkin spice syrup recipe that I got from the boozy ginger on Instagram. And then it became a challenge of what drink can I actually use this syrup in? Hmm. Because honestly, it's so good. I've been having it in my coffee and Mm -hmm. I'm just like mildly obsessed with it. (laughs) Honestly, you could probably put it on like yogurt or ice cream and be like, "Mm, Mm, delicious treats. I could see that. So the Boozy Ginger is an Instagram mixologist. She's always mixing up some beautiful drinks that always sound amazing. So she offered up the opportunity to have access to 22 of her simple syrup recipes to her Instagram followers. And I said, hell yeah. Sign me up. As fast as my little fingers could type in my information. (laughs) You can have my email address in exchange for this information. I'm telling you what. (laughs) So they all sounded good. But this one specifically has pumpkin puree and pumpkin pie spice. So it's like peak fall. Just what we're looking for here. Um, There are others that I'm going to try out and mix into our recipes. So keep your eyes peeled. Making simple syrups, if you've been around with us for a while, flavored (laughs) or otherwise, is one of my favorite pastimes. Mm -hmm. So shout out to Sarah, the boozy ginger. I can't wait to use all of these recipes. Um, Mixing up the simple syrup has to be done before you mix up this cocktail as it has to be cooled completely before use. So to start with, you'll need one and a half cups of brown sugar. And you combine it in a saucepan with one cup of filtered water, one quarter cup of pumpkin puree. I used the can kind and it came out a okay. Mm-hmm. And one tablespoon of pumpkin pie spice. Bring that all to a boil and make sure you keep your eyes on it. I may have over boiled it a smidge. Mm-hmm. Um, and once it is boiling, reduce the heat to low, simmer it for about 10 to 15 minutes until it thickens up a bit and then remove it from the heat. I let mine cool for about 15 minutes and then I strained it through a fine mesh strainer to remove the solid bits because you don't want you don't want chunky monkeys floating around in your drink, you <laughs> no. know. 
Um, and then once it's strained, I let it cool completely, put it in a jar with a secure lid because it is sticky. You don't want anything that might gum it up. Just yeah. putting that out there. <laughs> right. Um, it's good for about three weeks in your fridge. And honestly, it probably won't last that long. I made a double batch and I'm like burning through it. You guys really need to get on the simple syrup trend if you're not with yeah. it already because she's fully converted me. I now make my own simple syrup yep. for at home. I'm basic i just do brown sugar cinnamon but yeah but still i might try to branch out a little bit here and there it's all about what you want to add you can make mm -hmm. it savory and sweet you could make it just sweet and sweet it's it's nice because i started drinking cold brew mm -hmm. at home so now it's an easier way to add it to cold coffee heck yeah <laughs> i'm telling you man check it out get with it all right, so we're going to be mixing up an old-fashioned, like I mentioned. This is one of the most highly debated cocktails I have ever seen. Highly debated? If you're to believe all the Facebook bartender <laughs> groups I'm in, okay, everybody really is, like, ready to fist fight over it. They are passionate about old-fashioned. Do old you shake it? Do you add club soda? Do you muddle the orange and the cherry in the original one? I'm telling you, people are ready to... You know, right. everybody gets keyboard warrior on right. Facebook, mm -hmm. but this is like a whole nother level <laughs> because it's over everybody's a sleep deprived. Right. They've been dealing with the public, <laughs> so they're just ready to fight. That's fair. I, I get that. it. I'm mm -hmm. right there with you. As a daytime bartender, I understand. Yeah. <laughs> People are just as serious about their coffee as they are it's about cocktails. Wild. Actually, sometimes more so, I think. So I always say that we see people at their worst because in a restaurant, you see people when they're hangry, where they are lonely if they're drinking you know that kind of shit in the morning you see people before they've had any other con kind of contact with the human race yep. <laughs> before caffeine or at the end of their day if their third shift i had this one girl come in the other day she told me that she just got done working a 16 hour shift and she almost got hit while walking across the street to come order a coffee oh no she was so tired she forgot what she was talking to me about which was just her coffee order. I would have been like, here's your free coffee. I was like, you have poor thing. Day. Like, can you please sit down and <laughs> Do you have a seat first? Too? Like, she didn't. She just left. I was like, oh, my God, please be careful. Bless you. I was very worried. But anyways. Just, <laughs> right. We, we digress. So the way that I make a traditional old fashioned at my place of business, I model an orange and a cherry with some simple syrup and a dash or two of bitters. I add ice. I add the bourbon. I give it a quick shake. Dump it in the glass, top it with club soda. Twist the orange peel. That is it. Call it a day. Yes. Do with that info what you will. If you want to get on Facebook and fight, feel free. Um, Peach their own, I guess. Right. The Old Fashioned is actually on the IBA official cocktail list. This is the International Bartenders Association. Oh. And they have compiled a list of the most requested recipes. The Old Fashioned is an unforgettable cocktail, in case you were curious. There is like unforgettable, updated, like there's a whole, they have a whole system. Okay. It's pretty interesting actually. But if you follow the IBA way to make it, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. Apparently it's very specific. Oh. It's basically what I mentioned. Yeah. Some people don't muddle. Some people just don't take the rind off the orange. <laughs> There's a lot of things that happen that I'm like, huh? <laughs> the look of disdain on your face when you said Why that about the orange. You would you eat an orange rind? I would no, not. No, me personally, no. But I want it mushed up in my drink. No. I don't. <laughs> no. The texture of that alone. Blah. 
So the Old Fashioned itself is one of the earliest cocktails that was created before the development of advanced bartending techniques and recipes. According to the IBA, it is made by muddling sugar with bitters, adding whiskey, or less commonly, brandy. Hmm. That is a favorite of my friend Ling. She has made it for me. It is delicious. Um, And then you garnish all of that with a twist of citrus rind and a cocktail cherry. Hmm. So that's the official way to make it. The Pendennis Club, a gentleman's club founded in 1881 in Louisville, Kentucky, claims the old-fashioned cocktail was invented specifically at their establishment. Oh. The recipe was said to have been invented by a bartender at that club in honor of Colonel James E. Pepper, a prominent bourbon distiller, who brought it to the Waldorf Astoria Hotel Bar in New York City. Oh. It grew from there because everybody was like, wow, it's basically a cup of booze. Right. So how could you not love it? <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> um, cocktail critic David Wonderich finds this origin story unlikely, however, oh. as wonderful as it may sound. Um, as the first mention in print of old-fashioned cocktails, quote-unquote, was in the Chicago Daily Tribune in February of 1880, oh. before the Pendennis Club was even opened. In addition to the fact that the old fashioned was simply just a repackaging of a drink that had long existed. Again, it's a cup of booze. So I can see how that's a thing. Right. Bitters have been around forever. Put right. some sugar in it to make it drinkable. Call it a day. Well, and like we learned when we did the Prohibition epi- episode, they put so much shit in drinks just to make it pal- palatable Ye- in, in any mm-hmm. regard. So. Yep. <laughs> When you're working with bathtub gin, you do what you got to do. Right. Um, so with the conception that this drink was rooted in the city's history, in 2015, the city of Louisville named the Old Fashioned as its official cocktail. Each year during the first two weeks of June, so we are a little late, um, Louisville celebrates Old Fashioned Fortnight, which includes bourbon events, cocktail specials, and National Bourbon Day, which is always celebrated on June 14th. Good to huh. know. Who knew? That's not me. Day. Um, in January 2020, Drinks Journal Drinks International reported that the Old Fashioned was the top-selling classic cocktail internationally for the sixth straight year, based on its annual poll of 100 global bars. Wow. Right. That's I didn't a- think I would like Old Fashions, but then I started making them, and I tried them, and I was like, just kidding. This is actually delicious. These are good. I don't th- actually think I've had one before. So, so here we go. Here we so are. now that we have all of that wonderful information in our brains, let's mix up our drink. So we're 86ing the cherry from this recipe completely because we're going to replace it with our delicious pumpkin spice syrup. But you'll still need that wedge of orange. I remove the peel and drop the fruit right into the glass. Add two dashes of bitters and half an ounce of the pumpkin spice syrup. Whatever order that gets into your glass, no judgments. Mm-hmm. You muddle it all up, i.e. mush it together (laughs) Um, next up you add ice right over top of all of that Um, add in two ounces of your bourbon we're using bullet bourbon Um, I'm gonna go crazy and just break the chains of tradition here because of the pumpkin spice syrup being a little thicker Mm. um, I poured it right into a shaker and gave it a good shake because it just needed to be mixed up yeah so once you've done that if you feel like it Pour it all back into your glass, ice, fruit, all of it. 
I topped it all with a little bit of club soda, if you want. Again, that's a controversial thing, apparently. <laughs> I grabbed a cinnamon stick, swirled it around in the drink, put it right in the glass as a garnish, and bam. That was it. Ooh. It's good, right? That is very good. So it's a very strengthy cocktail. There is two ounces mm -hmm. of bourbon, and the bullet is not to be messed around with. You can definitely taste it. But it's not like it's eyeball not overpowering opening. Mm -hmm. by any means. Yeah. That's good. I... I know this might be a hot take, but I prefer my drink shaken for the most part. I just feel like it's all mixed together better. I yeah. don't know. Maybe that makes me a little old lady, but I just <laughs> want it to be thoroughly mixed. I agree. This is good. This is very good. All right. So while you're finishing up making your cocktail, coffee, glass of water, whatever, we're going to take a super duper quick break while we hear from our friends over at the Podmoth Network. Welcome to the Ugly Radio on the Podmoth Network, a lo-fi sci-fi audio theater anthology series made for late nights and strong drinks. Join us monthly as we broadcast a pirate signal across time and space, featuring stories, songs, and frequencies from a rotating list of voice actors, writers, storytellers, and musicians. If you're looking for high-quality science fiction, skin-crawling horror, and other genre fiction, listen to The Ugly Radio on the Podmoth Network, now available wherever you get your podcasts. The Ugly Radio. See you in the void. Let's get started, shall we? Oh, I mean, I guess. <laughs> so, fun fact that David Crush was actually born as Vernon Wayne Howell. What a name. That's a mouthful right mm -hmm. there. On August 17th, 1959 in Houston, Texas. Just to make things a little bit easier to follow, we're just going to refer to him as David because that's what he is more widely known by it really confused the shit out of me when i was doing my research it was confusing at some point read. in my sources it switched to david and i was right. like i should have just started with david but by that point i was too far in right to no, go back and fix it i agree and it was just i mean while we followed it obviously i feel like just from a listener's perspective it would just be easier to go by david so yes. To not confuse you guys or us once the booze Honestly, hits. So mm -hmm. <laughs> this is a strong cocktail, y'all. Right? <laughs> His parents were 20-year-old Bobby Wayne Howe and 14-year-old Bonnie Sue Clark. That's not a typo. That is one four fourteen. <laughs> Literally. I was like, I had to go back and be like, wait, that can't be right. No, I was like, no, it is right. Okay. <laughs> it certainly is. And, you know, Bobby was a busy man and he knocked up another teenager. So he actually left Bonnie Sue before she gave birth. And ultimately, Bobby wasn't really all that interested in Koresh, truth be told. And the two didn't even meet until David's late teens. All this to say, David's life in the very beginning didn't start out great. Wasn't dealt a great hand. No. Nope. And as you can imagine, this made things a little stressful for young Bonnie Sue, and she was really struggling. In fact, when David was four years old, she actually left him in her mother's care, 
and ran off with her latest boyfriend who just so happened to be a violent alcoholic so i'm i'm glad that she left the child yes in the safety of somebody who could at least yes had better means to care for him yes so during this time david's grandmother Erlene went on to have two more children sharon and kenneth despite David being their nephew, the three of them were raised and behaved almost more like siblings. David was often described as a bright and precocious child and was quite close with his mama, which is what he called Erlene. Things changed, however, when Bonnie Sue came back because that always happens. Right. (laughs) David was seven when his mom and new stepdad took him back to Dallas with them. It was quite a change for David, a new dad, a new sibling, as the couple had a child together, a boy named Roger, after years of his mother not even being in his life. Right. So talk about culture shock and a whole new city. Like, I just... That's just a whole lot of things happening at once. That would be a lot for anybody. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Additionally, according to a young David, Roy liked to administer physical discipline. Roy denied this, however, and said... And I quote, we had our normal problems. We got along okay. Yeah. I don't know why, but I don't like that. (laughs) I was like, (laughs) okay can mean a lot of things, though, you know. And also a kid who's already been traumatized can over-exaggerate. True. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, who knows? Take it all with a grain of salt, folks. (laughs) Trust me, things only get better. Now, if you were to ask David, his childhood was a lonely one. He was dyslexic. He had poor eyesight and poor study skills. And this led to him being held back in the first grade. And he was put in special education classes during his third and fourth grade as well. Kids are vicious. And he was bullied constantly. And he didn't really have a lot of friends. When he was a teenager, however... He moved back to his grandmother's house and he actually fixed up an old shed in the backyard so he could stay in it. And it was your typical 14 year old boy's room. He had a bed, a black light, fluorescent designs and a lot of Ted Nugent posters. So the essentials. I mean, is it? Well, for a teenage boy, I just think of those black fuzzy photos. You know what I mean? Like the raised fuzzy parts. With the black that light. we all had in, yeah. when we were teenagers. Yes, yes, absolutely. Not in a shed, though, in my grandma's backyard. Do you it know should what be noted. I would have done, though, for a shed in my grandma's backyard when she I was shed 14? Before they were she sheds. 100%. Yeah. That, this is a dream as far for some. Additionally, there was all these little neighborhood girlies that would come and quote unquote visit Sharon. And I say that only because their true intentions were to actually meet the new guy in the neighborhood who had his own place, essentially. And he played musical instruments. Obviously. Duh. <laughs> I'm just like, mm, I could see 14-year-old Suzanne having say, those thoughts. Teenagers, but, right? Like, yeah. And it's always the sisters, aunts, Especially back then, like, I mean, it wasn't that long ago, but it was long enough where, like, there were not cell phones, there were not ring cameras, nobody was keeping track of anybody. (laughs) Well, and but uh, at the same time, everybody knew everybody in the neighborhoods because it was just a different kind of vibe then. And so, if a a teenage boy just randomly showed up, especially one that was probably talk of the town, exactly, especially one that was like touting around a guitar with like longish hair and. Mm 
Women were probably so clutching their pearls. for disaster. We've is been what we're down saying. this road before. This, I was just going to say, this is giving off eerily similar vibes to some of our past mm-hmm. topics. Now, despite the troubles he had during elementary school, he was actually well-liked by most of his peers in his teen years. This was one of the happier times in David's life and proved to be the most stable. But his grandfather, who his, was described as a, a real... I think she, she, I think the quote was, he was a cowboy boot wearing man's man or something like that. Oh. Take with that what you will. I can. Mm-hmm. Grandpa was not thrilled with David staying at the house. And so he actually forced him to go back to his mother's home. So the fun train ended, eh? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Probably was just sick of all the girls being there. Probably. Like this, it's Ted loud. Nugent music and stuff. It's loud here now. I don't like it. <laughs> So it should be noted that David's mother, Bonnie Sue, and his grandmother, Erlene, were practicing Seventh-day Adventists. So while growing up, David had to adhere to a strict moral code and participate in many, many, many Bible studies. Many, many, many Bible studies. But David ultimately had problems with the formal instruction of it all, as well as the rules that Seventh-day Adventists needed to abide by, which... We will get to later, but they are plentiful. (laughs) So at 16, he left his public high school and went to a church-run academy, likely because of his behavioral problems. It's not really noted, but we're going to assume that's what it was. Mm -hmm. He did end up dropping out of school entirely during his sophomore or maybe junior year. It was around this time that his obsession with the Bible began to grow. He was always listening to preachers on the radio or reading his Bible in his spare time. According to a Spectrum magazine article, the family was reluctant to discuss what took place at the church-run Dallas Junior Academy. But Erlene said that, quote, she was told that Vernon, a.k.a. David, got into a dispute with a teacher and was feuding with his parents, end quote. Interesting. That could be literally anything. Right. I just have so many questions. Yeah. Um, Sharon recalled that, quote, he was having a lot of trouble at home with Bonnie and Roy, end quote, and that Bonnie had to take him out of school there. So back to his grandparents' house, David goes. By the time Crush was 18, he was really struggling to find his place in the world, as most 18-year-olds are. I mean, he's not really special for this. No. Just given all the extracurricular stuff that's working against him, though. Yeah. But I mean, can relate. According to Kenneth, his uncle brother. (laughs) No. Oh, no. That's the only way to describe it, though. I mean, really. That's that's what he is. Cringe. Kenneth said that David was, quote, always looking for something. He had his rock and roll. He had his women, but it was never enough, which I think really speaks volumes for the trajectory that we're about to explore here. Mm -hmm. (laughs) David was working in construction and he was eventually able to afford the down payment on a new Silverado pickup. And he decked it out just like you think an 18 year old rocker in the late 70s would do so. Yeah. It's quite obvious whose car it belonged to. Right. And it was right around this time that he met Debbie Owens, a 16-year-old waitress. The two began dating. I use dating loosely. He's only like 18, 19 here, so it's not like the worst thing. But I have the 
the bonus of hindsight here. So right. either way, Debbie was enamored with him. She thought she was so lucky to have gotten somebody like David and they would just spend days and evenings together at an open air pavilion, which was a spot where David would just play his guitar for hours. I mean, no. when you're 16. Well, yeah, I get it. I mean, I guess here's where it gets a little extra weird. She went on to say, looking back, that music was everything to David and that he made sure that she knew that. And in her own words, quote, that was the main thing in his world. I was second. Music came first. End quote. Huh. Now, ordinarily, I'd be like, you know what? You you go 18 year old you knowing what you want in life, not letting a girl distract you. But that's not what this is. I don't think. No. It's gross. Well, no, the vibe I'm getting is like all of it's not enough. Right. I want the music. I want the girls. I want all of it. I want all the things. You know, and she just loved this aspect about him. She thought it was so cool that he was so passionate about his music. And you know what else she loved? The quote unquote effect he had on younger boys. Maybe it's not as nefarious as you think. No, but, but doesn't it just sound really fucked cringy? up either way? Yes. <laughs> so he was often seen hanging out with much younger boys who seemed to idolize him. So I guarantee he's getting something out of oh, that. for sure. According to Debbie, quote, he really pumped them up, played with their self-esteem, and they thought it was so neat that here this older guy would take time to talk to these 14 to 16 year olds it was real important to him that they thought highly of him respected his music his brain his values end mm. quote i bet it was i'm sure it was incredibly important stroking that ego <laughs> so here's the interesting thing about this time not once in the seven months of their super close very valuable relationship <laughs> did david ever mention the bible or religion or anything even remotely close to those two topics. And on top of that, he was seeing another girl. Scandalous. A teenager in Dallas that was allegedly pregnant with his child. Ugh. Right. Unfortunately for David, and probably really fortunately for Debbie and every that pregnant girl, mm -hmm. the pregnant girl and David were not given permission to marry. David was distraught with the amount of emotional upheaval he was experiencing at this time, the loss of the two relationships in his life. He met his dad, who really was like, meh, yeah. about it all. <laughs> right. So he did what one would do, and he turned to the church. So let's just take a moment or two to talk a little bit about the Seventh-day Adventists, because the Branch Davidians 100% doomsday cult but i would argue that this has a lot of the same characteristics i'm not calling it a cult i'm going to preface all of this by saying that susan and i are not judging anybody no, for, for what sure. religion or faith you have we have our own spirituality that we connect with so like we're not here to judge you or any of that but i will say i grew up in an organization very similar to the seventh day adventist to me there is a difference between having a religion that you believe in and a belief that you live your life by in this. Right. So, and also there's a lot of baddie offshoots that people know nothing about. Right. So, <laughs> and this is where it starts. So in order to understand where we go from here, I feel like it's important that we 
have a good foundation. So we're going to kind of dive in a little bit to what the Seventh-day Adventists are all about. They are considered an Adventist Protestant Christian denomination that is distinguished by its observance of Saturday, the seventh day in the week as the Sabbath, which I'll be honest, I never knew. I actually was like, huh. It makes sense. The word Advent means coming. And in this context, it refers to their belief that Jesus Christ will soon return to this earth. This group differs from mainstream Christianity in four specific areas. The Sabbath day, the doctrine of the heavenly sanctuary, the status of the writings of Ellen White, and their doctrine of the second coming and millennium. They overall live modest lives and they adhere to a strict code of ethics, like hella strict. (laughs) They don't smoke, they don't drink, they're not allowed to consume unclean foods, which leads to a general promotion of a vegetarian diet. And thanks to this website that we found, bbc.co.uk, we've got a pretty succinct summary of some of their core belief system, starting with the most important, probably. The Bible and the Ten Commandments are law. There is no question. There is no interpreting it differently. There's no gray. It is black and it is white. These are the texts (laughs) and the teachings in which they live by. And this is how you are to live your life. It is all spelled out for you in the book, point blank, period. Hmm. We're off to a great start. Starting off with a bang. (laughs) Starting off real strong. (laughs) Um, So they also believe in a literal and historical six day creation They observe the Sabbath from sunset on Friday to sunset on Saturday. The Adventist doctrine of salvation is an entirely conventional one of salvation by grace through faith, although it is surrounded with some ideas that are outside the Christian mainstream. Which I feel like is basically just saying that most Christian religions believe in if you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you will be saved. Yes. But this is that on steroids and then some i feel going with a shot of tequila and (laughs) a blunt on the side 100 (laughs) percent. so another uh kind of component if you will to their beliefs is known as the remnant this is a church that has the duty of keeping faith in jesus and obedience to god's commandments alive in this time basically just referring to the congregation it seems This doctrine also announces the arrival of the judgment hour. This is a big thing. It proclaims salvation through Christ. Also really big. And it also heralds the approach of the second coming. All of these go hand in hand with each other. How long have we been talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ? It feels like forever. This pops up and and everything's similar. It really does. And this, I mean... I was very surprised to see how much these core beliefs and values overlapped with what I was raised to believe and value. And I didn't do a lot of research into other religions when I got up. I, when I got out of it, I very much went to God isn't real to agnostic to now my own kind of version of spirituality, figuring that out for myself. So it's so crazy to see, just like you said, how common of an occurrence this is. I'm like, oh, we're seeing we're seeing this again. Check. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so 
this group, they believe in the great controversy, quote unquote, which is the battle between Satan and Christ. Again, I feel like that happens a lot. Yeah. Like everybody. Mm -hmm. Um, FYI, humanity is involved in this battle. And obviously you should choose Christ and not Satan. Right. But it's black and white. If you don't choose Christ mm-hmm. overtly and loudly, I'm assuming mm-hmm. that means that you're choosing Satan. Well, and what we're going to see is that there's so many aspects to what you are supposed to do to be considered a good Adventist or in like my case, a good witness. And if you're not fully embodying that all day, every day then you're not fulfilling your end of the bargain here. And this is part of the scare tactics that a lot of religion-based cults use Mm -hmm. because they want to scare you into believing the words that they're saying. Are you going to fall in line if you think the alternative is... Absolutely. (laughs) Especially, I mean, in in my case, I was born into it. So I didn't really know anything else until I got older to start forming my own opinions. Right. So when you're told this is the the absolute undeniable truth do not look for information elsewhere because it will mislead you you're gonna believe anything these crazy people say right including this next part which is the heavenly sanctuary this is one of the big things that kind of sets them apart from more mainstream christianity if you will it's like kind of the foundation of a lot of their faith. So the Old Testament teaches them that Aaronic priests ministered within a sanctuary that was made, um, sorry, a man-made version of the sanctuary that God created in heaven. So basically this is referring to churches and temples, and these are made in the image of what God has created in heaven. It all, you know, you're created in his image where you worship is created in that image. Okay. It all ties together. Okay. So this sanctuary that God created is known as the temple of God in heaven, which is also known as the place where God lives. And I don't really know why, but the thought of God having like an address just like, just really tickles me. (laughs) Like I live at the temple of God in heaven. It was just the way it was worded just really made me chuckle, even though I know what they mean, obviously. And, you know, so Adventists believe that Christ as the high priest of the new covenant ministers in this heavenly sanctuary. That's kind of like his jurisdiction from what I understood. It's a lot of look, not judging, but like it's a lot of nonsense talk. Well, so on these websites and stuff. Here's how I'm taking it. Well, because you don't know who's running the websites. I did cross reference everything like a hundred times. Well, even going on to their own websites. I went on to the Seven Day Adventist website. Well, they want you to buy what they're selling. It's just like I read four paragraphs. I'm like, there is nothing of (laughs) substance. Like this told me literally no information. Right. Oh, for sure. But it's all. It sounded real flowery. Sounded real nice. I bet it did. I'm sure they. Pay somebody well in mm-hmm. heaven credits to write it. <laughs> anyway, you think they hand out tokens? <laughs> I, I hope so. Like two its for drinks, <laughs> but they're like tokens for heaven. Okay. Mm. Anyway. <laughs> so the heavenly sanctuary has two areas, the holy place and the most holy place. Because what? Gotta level this up. Is, this is where they, I mean, they lost me already, but this is where they really lose yeah, me. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, hmm. So they believe that when Christ went from earth to heaven, he went into the holy place. And that after um, two, 
2,300 years, Christ went into the most holy place to cleanse it before his second coming on earth. He was nesting. Apparently. And that while he's doing that, the Holy Spirit is working to cleanse God's people, which would be the Seventh-day Adventists. Right. Correct. And anybody who, like, chooses to follow that. Because they believe in the Holy Trinity, all the things, you know, that that's pretty common amongst Christian religions, uh, yeah. except for the Jehovah's Witnesses. <laughs> so basically, in all of this, Christ is acting as both priest and sacrifice and is doing the work of investigative judgment. This judgment is a very large deal within this organization, as it was in the one I grew up with. This is where the similarities. I was like, oh, Bree just talked about that. Yep. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, it reveals this investigative judgment reveals which of the dead are righteous and should be resurrected at the second coming and which of the living are worthy of living in this heaven. Weird, right? Y'all. So they also believe that prophecy is an important gift from God that was manifested in the ministry specifically of Ellen G. White, whom they regard as the Lord's messenger. It is believed that White was an evangelical in that she had high regard for the Bible, saw the cross as central, supported righteousness by faith, believed in Christian activism, and sought to restore New Testament Christianity. All in all, long story short, she's like the founder, if you will. Yeah. So a lot of what they believe is based on her predictions and teachings yep. and writings and you all, know, that you know, all that good stuff. The whole shebang. Their beliefs about death are also different from Christian churches. And I think I might have mentioned this very briefly last week as well, because again, so is the J-dubs. They do not believe in the concept of heaven or hell. I was always told, don't you think it's weird that like they would want their ancestors watching you from heaven? Like, that's a weird concept. We don't believe in that. Like, that's how they framed it to kids. Not terrifying at all. Right. But. (laughs) But you're they, right. You don't they, want people watching. Right. That, and that's from just it, some weird above place. And I literally was like, yeah, you're right. I mean, I was like old enough to it was when my papa passed away. That was the first like time I ever had to deal with death in any kind of significant way. And that was when I was first learning about these beliefs. And let me tell you, it's so crazy, but they sell it in such a way like, it makes it believable. Who doesn't want to believe that the dead are just unconscious and they're just waiting for the return of Christ in judgment, especially when that's what you believe you're working towards your right. whole life. And so, of course, this also leads to the disbelief in spiritualism of any kind. So according to them, since the dead just stayed dead until resurrection, there isn't actually any soul or spirit left. So the mediums can't connect or contact there's no veil in between you know whatever all the things they don't Mm. believe in all that kind of stuff interesting which was always odd to me because if you believe in angels why don't you believe in demons yeah right i mean it's not that simple but at the end of the day yeah though you have to have both sides of the coin right (laughs) it's super interesting to me we're just picking and choosing right here which is always what gets me But as you guys will see like all of the the tenants if you will kind of feed into each other and it's building this like broad picture of them basically telling their congregation every day like the end of the world is imminent 
And if you do not save yourself in the ways that we are explicitly telling you to do, right. And if you don't donate your entire life, you have to dedicate your entire being to be what they want you to be. And if you don't do that, out of luck. Which it's all encompassing. It's your time, your money, your dedication, emotionally, spiritually. Yeah. It's all of it. It's all consuming in so many ways. Mm -hmm. An interesting term, though, that kind of goes with this belief surrounding death is conditional immortality. And this means that all humans are mortal and that we're going to die at the end of our life. But humans that gave their life to Christ will eventually be resurrected and given the gift of a new and immortal life. No, (laughs) I just think of the walking dead. Yeah, I'm good. So, (laughs) and of course the flip side to this is sinners and unbelievers will ultimately die for eternity. I mean, think about the flood and Noah's Ark. It was meant to wash all of the wicked away from the world. I was always told like, something to that magnitude would happen again. And then like the result of it was going to be like this paradise on earth. They would, they had magazines, like all their own literature where they literally had kids frolicking with lions. And I was like, man, I can't wait to have my own lion someday. Cause I mean, you know, I'm seven. That would be bomb <laughs> right now as a older person. But I mean, you want to know, you know, these are the kinds of things that they put into place. They have these really distinct and overbearing rules and beliefs and then they manipulate them in a way to show you why it's good right but it's it's not usually Mm. so here's the moral code that we were mentioning earlier (laughs) and how restrictive it is so they regard their bodies as temples of the holy spirit and must treat them as such this is a quote dresses to be simple modest and neat befitting those who True beauty does not consist of outward adornment, but in the imperishable ornament of a gentle and quiet spirit. End quote. Mm. So I'm going to guess tattoos, piercings, tattoos hair dye, definitely makeup. No. Whoops. When well, I, darn. When I got my first tattoo, my mom was devastated. Yeah, well. She was so, she's, and it was, it's big-ish. She's like, I don't know why it's so big. I wasn't, she begged me not to wear like skirts to the kingdom hall because i was still in it but i was not really in it at that point (laughs) but my my grandma had passed away by this point so that's when i really started kind of losing my faith if you will yeah thank god (laughs) okay madonna (laughs) unintended (laughs) so as far as entertainment goes they can only watch educational um, news and classical music programs that are considered valuable. They must avoid anything that isn't wholesome or uplifting. So that means no going to the movies, no dancing, a la Kevin Bacon and Footloose. <laughs> right. You're not allowed. Um, and that meant also that they couldn't listen to most music because it was considered dangerous. It could sway your mind. It mm-hmm. could sway your values, etc., etc. Here's another direct quote. Social gatherings for old and young should be made occasions, not for light and trifling amusement, but for happy fellowship and improvement of the powers of mind and soul. That's exactly what we were talking about. That reads like a cult. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) It's just young and old um, for happy fellowship. (laughs) Are we all meditating? No, because no, that's not allowed. That's, okay. Mm-mm. We're just talking about the Bible? Mm-hmm. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. Just mm-hmm. like in a 
I just envision like a not paneled room, but like an office. Mm -hmm. I envision like the office. Okay. With a table and chairs and like a whiteboard. And everybody just sitting there sipping stale you're ass not, coffee. Being you're like, not that far off, to be honest. Yep. When, so God. <laughs> so in in my experience, it was always um, everybody took turns hosting the Bible studies. They weren't called social gatherings. Like they were what they were. There was several. So Sundays was the actual like meetings themselves, like the main ones. And then there was talks on Tuesdays and Thursday evenings. And then usually on like Mondays and Fridays or like Mondays and Wednesdays, or maybe all three, there That's would be every day. Of the there week. would be everybody taking turns hosting Bible studies because when you go to get baptized, you have to start doing all of that. And before my grandma passed away, I started that journey and it was a lot. Were you ever baptized? No, oh. you have to show a very thorough knowledge of the religion and the Bible and you know, all of the things and you have to go through like a rigorous, not so much an exam, but maybe like an interview, if you will, of the elders to ensure that, you know, what you should know. I'm not going to so lie. You can be I a true witness. a Methodist. No, we sing happy songs. Yeah. No, we praise the Lord. I gotta try. There's a sermon. I'm going to try to find that church is different. Trust the song, me. The songbook. Cause I feel like you'd be very intrigued by it, mm. but no, it was very, it's very, there was children as young as six getting baptized. So, I mean, think about the indoctrination from the age of six. My family was a little different because we had You're a, like, I mean, luckily looking back on honestly, it, honestly, right? <laughs> like at the time it was really embarrassing because we were kind of out, like we were shunned a lot from the group because of actually one of the things we're going to get into yeah. here in a hot second, my mom went through a divorce cause it was a very violent situation and she needed to get out. And that was the only reason why it was okay. But like, but it wasn't really, okay. we weren't right? really included in a lot of ways because yeah. like we were very inconsistent with meetings and it was just a lot happening while I was growing up and the pressures of from experience, the pressure that you are put under to live this life is unrelentingly unrelentless and you just will crumble under it at some point that's a lot though a seven day a week commitment to yeah. anything not even You're to not my to... job to a partner like that's yeah. a lot though well, you're seven not days supposed a week? to have any kind of connections to anybody like that's outside we, of the church they in the witnesses they always refer to them as worldly people like you weren't supposed to have worldly connections oh, shit. outside of yes. like just what you needed to do to like live your everyday life but you weren't supposed to be friends with people that's weird like i was told once if there was a jehovah's witness school like i would have gotten sent to it so i didn't get swayed like it's thank god you really, were swayed brie oh my god like Jeez, honestly Louise. i got to a point and here's the sad thing I got to a point where I was like, I can't be a good Jehovah's Witness, so I might as well just have fun and live my life because I can't do this anymore. And it took me to like 16 to start really feeling like that. And then by the time I was like 22. I've watched some docs specifically about the Jehovah's because I do find it interesting yeah. in like a it, watching like, a jungle kind of way. <laughs> well, it's just like all of this stuff but that there, we do. There are a lot of people that are like 
middle-aged mm-hmm. that were like, well, something traumatic happened in my core family yep. and I handled it wrong yep. and I had to deal with the, the repercussions. repercussions. Yep. Yes. Mm-hmm. Which I find very interesting. Yeah. It's almost like a, you know what I mean? That like oh. switch was well, flipped. We see it in other things too. Like look at Scientology. Mm-hmm. Really great example because they have the disconnection doctrine like same thing with the witnesses same thing here like we're we're about to get into the, one of the last most obvious of tenants is no sex outside of marriage this is the one that usually gets people the most right but the funny part is is they i feel like everybody preaches it but how many people actually follow well in these kinds of situations i'm inclined to believe that they follow it <laughs> only like Again, I was fortunate enough. I feel that. Yeah. I was kind of part of that kind of rogue family where we did our best to do all the things that we needed to do, but also like it was just a lot. Kept your distance a little. Well, not intentionally. Involuntarily. Not intentionally. My mom kind of went down a road that she probably shouldn't have, which then left my brother and I to kind of fend for ourselves a lot. My grandmother did what she could, but you know, it's just tale is all this time right so so it just kind of leads to not only a feeling of like not belonging to the outside world but not belonging to the world that you're supposed to belong to right. as well it really fucks with you religious trauma is real and i don't think it gets talked about enough there's also a lot of documentaries on that we're gonna have to do like a whole thing on just the thing but it's i true. thought it was interesting there are a lot of parallels though from mm-hmm. what you've told me personally and on the podcast yeah. itself so it's weird to see it mirrored it is it, you know it what very I mean? much is especially because it's really i bet it's worse for you but i'm like oh wow that's <laughs> kind of so triggering in a little in a little bit but in a way that i'm so disconnected now that i can in a manageable way yeah <laughs> i guess because yeah. now i'm at the point where i'd rather try to educate people about this kind of stuff right. so they can like that's our whole vibe here right We want to learn. We want to educate ourselves. We want to help you guys learn. So maybe we can all make better choices and maybe help ourselves out of a sticky situation. Right. Right. And the Seventh Day Adventists, as well as Jehovah's Witnesses, is full of sticky situations. Yeah. But not before marriage. (laughs) So. (laughs) But the way that dating works for like teenagers it doesn't really happen. No. Parents are expected to chaperone any and all meetings between young people. That's very much a thing in a lot of these kinds of organizations. And this is pretty standard. Adultery, being gay, sex abuse within marriage, incest, pedophilia, all banned. They're no-nos. However, and this was specifically noted on their website, pornography should be avoided. I mean... It's not banned. But don't do it. Just avoid it. it. If you can, I guess, right? Also, you can't marry a non-church member, which is also not unusual in these instances. There's a lot of religions that say, like, maybe don't, but, like, if you're willing to have a conversation or convert, like mm-hmm. Catholicism, but even then, the Jewish religion. How crazy is it that you'd have, like... Somebody's got to give up what they you believe. You have to convert in order to get married in this place. Yeah. Same, like, <laughs> it was crazy. We almost... When we had my grandmother's viewing, trying to get it open to the, it was at the kingdom hall, but trying to get it so like non-witnesses could come because my grandmother did have close relationships with her friends who were non-witnesses was a battle, Uh, but it happened. So we got what we wanted. Right. But this is the most interesting, I think, out of all of this like marriage shenanigans in the Seventh-day Adventists here. 
most religions, marriage is a forever kind of thing, right? Yes. Now, in cases of adultery, sexual perversion, or abandonment by a non-believing spouse, if any of these were to occur, a divorce is granted, but only after failed meditate, not meditation. We did, we went over that failed mediation. Uh, the church will absolutely try to get the couple to reconcile first, but if that's not possible, then they will not shun you for getting a divorce. But here's a weird fun fact. In cases of adultery post divorce, the faithful spouse retains the right to remarry, but the cheater may not while their ex-partner is alive. That's what? I feel like that's the pettiest thing that we learned about this organization. And I was like, I mean, I love a good petty, but right. like, don't get me wrong. What? Petty is my love language. <laughs> Out of all but... the things, like that's the hill we're going to like stand on here. I just thought that was kind of interesting. It but is. Also a really great example of bizarre repercussions and consequences when you step out of line well yeah absolutely which is a huge theme in cults in general i feel yes so all things considered they're clear about what is and is not acceptable like crystal (laughs) like very clear as we learned david wasn't really someone who practiced a lot of this before rejoining the seventh day adventist he was however welcomed back with open arms the congregation seemed thrilled to have a young fallen away member return back to the fold in the faith according to one of the elders in the church david felt a lot of guilt regarding his past sex life and resented the fact that he wasn't allowed to marry the ex Bob Bachman, an elder that took David under his wing, said, quote, the girl he was with in in the Dallas area was about to have his baby. It was just killing him because her parents didn't want him around anymore, end quote. Well, yeah. I mean, she's 16. Right. No shit. And pregnant in Texas. Right. Ooh. Right. Yeah. That extra onion layer. Yep. Texas. (laughs) Y'all be crazy down there sometimes. Still to this day. (laughs) So in the beginning, David sought counsel, wanting to reform his ways, be saved, whatever, whatever. This, however, did not last very long. He soon became everyone's judge, especially when it came to women and how they conducted themselves, which you would catch my hand to your throat, (laughs) right to your windpipe. Try and tell me what to do. Even as a joke, see what happens. LOL. (laughs) Who's laughing now? Um, David also began spending a lot of time commanding the attention of the younger members, which seems to be his forte. We're seeing a pattern Mm -hmm. here. And as far as his feelings of guilt regarding his own promiscuity, well, let's just say that he began to use the church as a place to develop relationships with the female congregants, be it platonically or sexual in nature. Mm. He liked it all. (laughs) He enjoyed his options, if you will. (laughs) Ha ha. No, but you're right. I mean, we're seeing a series of patterns and we're going to continue to kind of see this. I just feel like he's refining what was working and fine tuning it to get it to work on a larger scale. Exactly. Because ultimately he's searching for something and he hasn't quite found it, but he's getting a step closer. Right. Every time he kind of gets to a different checkpoint in his life, if you will. Now, according to his sister, Aunt Sharon, this this period <laughs> of time, time. <laughs> this period of time was the last best chance for someone to kind of step in 
and possibly prevent the inevitable transformation from Vernon to David. You know, there was just a sequence of events that is about to unfold. And this was kind of the start of it. Call it a series of unfortunate events. Honestly. So what the catalyst in this whole thing was a series of revival meetings known as Revelation seminars that David, Sharon and others had all attended together. They went every single night of the week and they were just totally enthralled by this evangelist named Jim Gilly. And he was talking about Armageddon. This is part of that judgment, the end of days, the things you better shape up or you're just going to be dead on the ground. And here's the thing. This guy presented an extremely dramatic and frightening presentation of what Armageddon was going to look like. And this changed everything for David. And this was kind of the moment where he started viewing himself as a potential prophet, because according to him, Mr. Gilly was actually missing a key piece to the puzzle. Of course he was (laughs) right. Which was the seventh seal. Apparently something that only can be opened by a new prophet. Now I had to look this up because I knew it sounded familiar. I was like, I have no idea, but I couldn't quite remember what it was. And I was close. The seven seals were actually described in the book of Revelation. They bind a scroll held in God's right hand that prophesizes the calamities that precede the apocalypse. And the the memory this unlocked for me was of my grandmother showing me in the book of Revelations all the different like things that were going to happen. A checklist, if you will. As for we go Armageddon? Through, yes. Oh, Now, it's interesting because, like, my mom, for example, was told that she shouldn't bother having kids, shouldn't bother going to school, don't bother doing anything because Armageddon will happen sooner rather than later. My grandmother was told before that, my great-grandmother before that. We've been witnesses in this family for a hot minute. I was told the same thing, except my grandma was like, skirt, skirt, maybe think about college. (laughs) <laughs> maybe maybe well, not throw away your education she through the not armageddon so she right. perhaps had some questions but this again just kind of lines up with everything that david is also trying to connect dots to if you will it's almost like this is the piece that he was seeking right like subconsciously even it yeah. reinforces everything that he thought about himself because this just absolutely convinced david that it was time to quote have a new prophet and a new light within the Seventh-day Adventist Church. So again, long story short, by this point, everybody in the church is just kind of sick of David's shit. I mean, I would be. We don't need no new prophets. We don't need you talking in everybody's ear, all your crazy ideas and so on and so forth. You're judging everybody. Right. Nobody asked you to do this. So when he started spewing his message to the congregation, they weren't exactly open to what he had to say. But the straw that broke the camel's back figuratively and basically literally here um, was when David started lusting after the pastor's daughter. Story. Tale as old as time, friends. (laughs) So the story goes that while praying for guidance one day, David opened his eyes and found that his Bible was open to Isaiah 34, 16. This verse states, and I quote, Look in the scroll of the Lord and read. None of these will be missing. Not one will lack her mate. 
for it is his mouth that has given the order and his spirit will gather them together, end quote. So David, of course, zeroed in on the part that would help him out, which was not one will lack her mate. And he was immediately convinced that this was a sign from God. So David went straight to the pastor to talk to him and told him that God wanted David to take his 12-year-old daughter as a wife. This 12-year-old preteen. Needless to say, that was it for the pastor. <laughs> he had had it up to his eyeballs, past his hair, up into the holy place, and then some. <laughs> In the and more holy place. <laughs> he threw David right out, right then, right there. David was not a man easily deterred, however, and kept trying to pursue a relationship with the girl despite her father's protests. And I'm curious, it didn't necessarily specify if this girl was receptive. Yeah. But what? I feel like she might not have actually had that much interaction with know? him. I don't even think she knew. He know. was just like, I, I like not. the looks of her. I hope not. But we'll learn later. Mm -hmm. We should be questioning it. Yes. You know? Oh, for sure. I mean, this pastor gets all of the credits well, for honestly, how he handled this shit. I want to high five him because ultimately this is what gets David Koresh disfellowshipped from the church completely. They dunzo. were like, no, thank you. Yeah, you're on the Dunzo list. <laughs> so after getting kicked out, David moved to Waco, Texas, where he joined the Branch Davidians. This is where shit gets wild. This is really well, this is where it starts to get wild. <laughs> I wish I had like a, t a ticker every time we said that. <laughs> Honestly, we'd be in the millions at this yeah, point, right? right? <laughs> So the Branch Davidians is a group formed by Victor Houteff in 1934. He, too, was a disaffected Seventh-day Adventist. Victor also fancied himself a prophet and quit the church to do his own thing. Ever since, the Branch Davidians had always had a living prophet among their congregation that was allegedly able to convey the message for its believers. That's crazy. How many prophets? You got to be like real into yourself the balls the brass balls on to, these people to be like yeah i'm a prophet of god especially so, to these groups of people who go. are basically like not for lack of a better term brainwashed into believing that what you're about to say is real so if you step into that role you could do we've we're literally reading about it and learning about it now you can do literally whatever and you can anything. say anything. It's mind bought. My mind no is rules. blown. It's like Ohio for religion. <laughs> for religion. <laughs> now, we'd like to take just a quick second to kind of make an interesting note, because the way that the Branch Davidians were founded and the way that David eventually found them was just so similar in nature that it could basically be the same story. So. In 1929, Victor claimed to have a new message for the church and proceeded to write a book about it titled The Shepherd's Rod, The 144,000, A Call for Reformation. In this publication, he called for a worldwide denominational reform and listed 12 specific areas that he felt needed to be addressed by the church. He also included information attempting to define who the 144,000 were, as well as some of his own interpretations of different books in the Bible. Victor ultimately handed out 33 different copies to an assortment of church leaders at a conference 
and received a promise that each person would read it thoroughly and respond promptly. In six years, Victor got two responses. Ooh, they lied. <sighs> yeah. Well, they probably knew it was coming. Yeah, well. Like, people, people in organizations like this do not take kindly to others trying to usurp their religious standing. You know what I mean? Despite all of this. Oh, wait. The two responses that he received were not encouraging. I wanted to make sure I mentioned that. So even the two that took the time to read it and respond were, were like, like, no, no, please don't. Because that is an important part of the trajectory mm-hmm. here. Like maybe not do this. Right. We do not agree. And then <laughs> he continued to try and spread his message to other church leaders, but they all eventually refuted or ignored what he had to say. He was specifically mad that nobody mentioned the 144,000 people. What? And I didn't know that anybody other than the witnesses had anything to do with that 144,000 people. I didn't even know that was a thing. It so. is. <laughs> the short version is, is that is the select group of people who, when Armageddon happens, will be, they're the chosen ones that will be taken into like resurrected God's or- realm and heaven and they get to rule with him. Oh. So like... Every Jehovah's Witnesses don't celebrate holidays. Yeah. That's common knowledge. There's one like ritual, if you will, that they do. And it's every year around Easter. They do something for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's called the memorial service. And during the service, they talk about Jesus dying for our sins and the 144,000 and Armageddon and all the thing. It's basically like a yearly reinforcement of don't forget End of the world's coming. You want to be one of the 144,000. Well, it's only a very elite group. And apparently you are called to that role, right? Like you have a calling. Like all these prophets. So they, at least in the Jehovah's Witnesses organization, can't speak to this one. They would have a moment. It was like a half an hour of the meeting where they just passed along bread and wine. And if you felt you were called... You took a sip and took a cracker or whatever it was. I think it's unleavened bread. Um, it's un- inedible. Yeah. Nobody in my experience, like I never was at a meeting where somebody took a drink, but that was the kind of thing. It's a very prestigious thing and oh. it's a really good way to keep people in check in a religion. Interesting. So I found this part extra fascinating because he was very mad about nobody acknowledging this thought process like nobody wants to talk about it because it's fucking crazy you're gonna take a sip of wine and all of a sudden you're the anointed one i don't get it to be fair catholics every time they i mean every service it's it's all the wine and the wafer it's all just different flavors yeah you know it's all the same shit at the end of the day it's just packaged differently it's just different wrapping yeah like it's just it's when you boil it down it's all the same shit right and in victor's case he just was so determined and he just remained unrelenting in his pursuit and he was officially disfellowshipped in 1930. So just like our boy, David. Yeah. Seeing the similarities here. (laughs) Um, Four years later on March 12th, specifically the organization, the shepherd's rod was officially up and running. Their feet were on the ground. They were later renamed the Davidians, which indicated its belief in the restoration of the Davidic kingdom of Israel. They began desiring a larger and more centrally located place for headquarters specifically. So in April of 1935, they purchased 189 acres of land just outside of Waco, Texas, and the Mount Carmel Center was born. Uh, 
This allowed Victor the ability to rectify one of the largest complaints he had regarding the Seventh-day Adventists, that they were seeking approval and accreditation of applicable medical and educational boards, so outside help. (laughs) Victor shot thought that they should keep everything in-house, so to speak, and his attempts to do that was born out of Mount Carmel. When Victor eventually died in 1955, his wife Florence took over leadership, claiming that she was the next prophet. Cool. (laughs) Super easy to do that. She immediately fucked it all up by predicting the specific date of the apocalypse. It was a whole thing. She had her entire congregation rushing around to prepare for the end of the world, like selling off their worldly goods, gathering together. jobs, pulling their kids out of school. Turns out she was wrong. Nothing happened. And everybody was like, well, fuck. Yeah. Maybe not fuck, but fudge. (laughs) What are we going to do now? Gosh, darn it all. (laughs) This event is... Essentially what caused a believer named Benjamin Roden to form a new group called the Branch Davidians. He and his own group of followers took control of Mount Carmel quickly and began to operate their own version of the previous system. Ben's wife, Lois, became a prominent figure within the church as well. She was the one who who eventually would take David in and showed him their ways when he first arrived at the compound. Lois also encouraged him to play guitar and sing during their daily Bible studies. And over time, this became an integral part of their practice. It's pretty normal, I feel like, for churches. Mm -hmm. When Benjamin eventually died, Lois took control of the Branch Davidians. She pretty much immediately deemed their son, George, unfit to assume the position of prophet. And instead, she groomed David to one day be her successor. And we mean groom. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. (laughs) Now, this was a perfect scenario for David. He had finally found an isolated and insular group that was more than willing to accept his claim of divine inspiration. Lois allowed him to start teaching his message to the congregation. David called these teachings the serpent's root, which caused quite the controversy. George started speaking out against David at this point. He called him an interloper and generally just accused him of not being what he claimed to be, which was a prophet. It should be noted, both of these people are batshit bananas. Crazy. But in this instance, George had a point. Right. <laughs> a valid point. Oh, 100%. I mean, and also, I would be pissed if my mom was like, you know what? No. You're unfit. It's not you. I'm going to have my affair partner over here Ooh. actually be the one. Creepy and ill. It's gross. So way back when David first appeared at Mount Carmel... He was actually described as a drifter, disheveled, and poor. One member said that he had a car that he was driving, but that, quote unquote, the Lord gave it to him. Mm. And this is part of the reason why George had such a hard time reconciling that this person was the group's next leader. Things got weirder when David claimed that God had chosen him to father a child with 60-year-old Lois. She was in her 60s at that point, and she was like, yeah, sure. Yeah, but... This child was going to be the chosen one, Suze. It's physically impossible. I don't know. It is. No, I mean, I know. (laughs) No, I know. But like, did they think that she was going to be like. Not immaculate conception, because obviously. Definitely not immaculate at all. (laughs) But yeah, I don't know what they thought. But again, nobody questioned it when Lois did not. 
I think that George pregnant. was really the only one at that time. It it takes time for people to wrap their head around weird shit because they they took so much time to indoctrinate you into this belief system. So when they do something that's like really fucking out of left field like this, you're just like, oh, okay, that's weird. Back to God. Well, like, and also, like I said, ev- everybody's crazy right now in this right. situation. <laughs> but George was off his rocker yeah so he probably sounded like a raving lunatic so people were like well we can't trust that guy right he's not the prophet and he's talking all crazy like yeah and he's being mean to the prophet which is also not great big no-no so some time goes by david eventually sets his sights on a girl named rachel the 14 year old daughter of one of his friends perry jones Perry was a lifelong member of the church and was of the belief that the federal government posed an oppressive danger to devout Christians. David, Perry, and Kenneth would often travel to conferences or revival meetings together, all with the intention of spreading their specific message. Along the way, they would often talk about God, government, and religion, rolling it all up into a delightful little package. (laughs) Knowing what we know now, it's quite possible that these conversations helped shape David's teachings and later his leadership, because shit gets even crazier, believe it or not. Eventually, David asked for permission to marry Rachel. Perry happily gave it, and the two were promptly wed. The couple would actually go on to have two children together, Cyrus and Star, with two R's. There was a calm within the church church for just a short period of time but george was becoming restless again things came to a head when a fire broke out in one of their administration buildings george accused david of setting the fire david responded to the allegations by saying that the fire was a quote-unquote judgment of god and that they were being punished this was not what people wanted to hear and many (laughs) members actually sided with george Things escalated until David and his followers were driven out of Mount Carmel at gunpoint. So things got like for real, for real. Yeah. Well, and I feel like the parishioners, I guess you could say, wanted something, somebody to be held accountable for one of their buildings burning down. So I think that when David had that cocky little, oh, it's God's doing it rubbed people the wrong way. And I They're think that was like, like the tipping point. So, right. <laughs> David and his group moved to Eastern Texas and they set up a camp. This lasted for about two years. During this time, David worked on recruiting new followers, which he was really, really, really good at. I just don't, you know, I think that it's hard for people, especially like you were raised with like parents who were open-minded and they were understanding of other people's religions and cultures and all that kind of stuff. When you're raised in a situation like this, or even you are so indoctrinated, you are going to believe it because you need to. Yeah. And also I think that charisma goes a really long way. If you know how to talk to people, that's why, you know, those snake oil salesmen, like that's why it's such a stereotype. Like, because if you can talk to people in public speaking, was a strong suit of David's. It's just, I said it with Charles Manson. I'll say the same <laughs> thing with David Crush. I do not get it. Desperate people want something Anything. to hang on to. Right. And I think for a lot of people, religion provides that. And I think that there's a lot of people who don't fully believe what they're being sold, but they need to for their own sanity. Yeah. 
not that that discredits or disvalues anybody's belief system because that's not what we're trying to do here but that's just my own observation from my experiences i just i've seen pictures and i'm like "Mm, (laughs) i don't know if i would follow this man into the desert or anywhere for that matter i mean we're incredibly suspicious individuals so i mean to be fair we're i don't think are a good like test pool for this (laughs) i mean i guess Mm. Now, interestingly enough, David also decided to travel to Israel during this two-year like hiatus in eastern Texas. And while he was there, he claimed to have had a vision that he was the modern-day Cyrus. Now, in case you didn't know, Prophet Cyrus is the person who liberated the oppressed Jewish people from Babylon in the in the Bible. Yeah, I think it's in the Bible. I'm pretty sure. I, can't I did keep like it some light research, but I was like, this is so tangled. It's such well, like a tangly web. I was like, I can't go any farther. Well, and I was not like I like I mentioned, myself. I was not expecting all the overlap. So I feel like I'm also getting my wires crossed <laughs> right. a little bit with things. Either way, upon David's return to the U.S., he and his followers decided that they were going to try and take back Mark- Mount Carmel. Lois had died the previous year and the exiled bunch yearned to go back they just kind of wanted to get back to their regular life what they didn't know or maybe they did it's unclear is that george ruled the community there with an iron fist he even went as far as renaming it rodenville which is stupid so not very creative much (laughs) sir There was one source that suspected that the reason why George was walking around being a huge dick to everyone was because he was actually scared that his followers were more tempted by Koresh's teachings than his own. Seems like it might be a thing. And per the same source, a full-blown mutiny was on the horizon. And so this was kind of the beginning of like a petty back and forth between the two men, George and David, for years. And it finally culminated in one of the oddest ways possible. I literally laughed at my computer when I read this because I was like, that can't be real. You guys, George was so sick of David's shit that he challenged him to a, wait for it, a necromancy challenge. Allegedly, according to David. So what happened was George exhumed a body from the community cemetery because, of course, they had one on property. He was only allegedly moving the cemetery or the burial plot for some unknown reason. David took advantage of this knowledge and reported George to the authorities. David was told by law enforcement that he needed proof. They like he needed to present them with some sort of proof before they, they just could take his word for it. Go in there, busting gates down and mm-hmm. whatnot. So he decided to go get some. He and seven armed followers arrived at Mount Carmel to allegedly snap some pictures, just that. But instead, a gunfight broke out almost immediately. George was injured but survived, which meant that David and the others with him were then arrested and later tried for attempted murder. Everyone arrested was eventually acquitted. The jury deadlocked on the charge against David specifically, which resulted in a dismissal. So there's that. It's so, this all because George was like, you know what? Let's just see who can raise this person from the dead. Yes. And that's who can lead the Branch Davidians. It's you or me. That was the choice. Yep. That was the challenge, you guys. It literally, he was like, let's see if you can do it. 
I wish that they would have had the chance to try because I know I'm curious <laughs> to see what would have happened. So afterwards, the sheriff's office had to return the dozens of weapons they had seized at Mount Carmel after the shootout. This very well may be the first time someone looked a little closer at what took place there. This could also be the event that put David Koresh and his group on the radar of the ATF and the FBI initially, which will prove important later. later. So put a pin in that. <laughs> in 1989, two years after the fact, George killed a man named Wayman Dale Adair with an axe blow to the skull. Just one day, kind of out of the blue. Dale's crime, you may ask, claiming to be the true messiah. Mm. Apparently, George just went into a fit of rage about this claim. Saw red and then some. Now, George claimed that this man was actually sent by Koresh to kill him during the subsequent trial that took place. And rightfully so. George was found to be insane and was sent to a psychiatric hospital, which is probably for the best. But this was exactly what David needed. He needed George out of his way and he wanted access to the compound. Yes. One way or another. Exactly. And not only was he going to be able to occupy it, like physically, he was able to purchase it legally because George owed some back taxes and David's group was able to actually raise the money and reclaim Mount Carmel as theirs. The following year on May 15th, the man formerly known as Vernon Howell filed a petition to legally change his name to David Koresh. He stated that this needed to be done for, quote unquote, publicity and business purposes. Interesting. Right. Now, the name choice was very intentional. The name David symbolized a lineage directly to the biblical king David, from whom the new Messiah would descend. Okay. The name Koresh is the biblical name of Cyrus the Great. Remember him? I do. And by taking this name, he was essentially professing himself to be the spiritual descendant of King David, a messianic figure carrying out a divinely commissioned errand. And then later that summer, a judge granted the petition. And just like that, another cult leader is born. Bing, bang, boom. It's It's crazy. And that's where we're going to wrap things for today. Sorry, guys. We just really wanted to take this week and really set the scene for what we're going to dig into next week, which is David Kresh's time as the official leader of the Branch Davidians, his unsurprising downfall and the tragic event known as the Waco massacre and or Waco siege. And don't worry, we'll explain why we keep saying it like that. We'll I get promise. All of it. Yeah. But we just wanted to really take the time to we, I feel like we needed to know where David came from to understand why he is the way that he is in his role as the leader. So knowing what I know about next week, I knew about it as a child. Having this background now, I'm like, ah, right. Like all the pieces are sort of coming together. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? It it was interesting to me to have this background because I didn't know any of this. I was a bit too young when it happened to really have much memory of it at the time. But I do have bits and pieces just of over the years of the aftermath, because as we're going to go over next week, there is a lot to get into. Well, and it was it was one of the earliest things that I remember that was like highly publicized, like it's an news interesting, choppers and like yeah. updates on the minute and you it's know. It's an that incredibly kind of thing. interesting turn of events, to be completely honest, because you would think after us setting this up for two episodes now that like 
David Koresh and the, their people are automatically the bad guys. But that might not be the case right. <laughs> when we're done with all of this. There so, are a lot of gray areas here. There is. And there's a lot of theories that we're going to dig into. So we just wanted to give you background today. Set the scene, if yeah. you will. So on that note... Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. You guys have no idea how much your continued support means to us. It really does mean the world that we can keep doing this. And people are out there listening and enjoying. This is my favorite thing. And it takes a lot of time and stress and, and things to create for me personally. But the end result is just so amazing. And watching this podcast grow from what it was to what it is now, there's nothing like it. We'd be feeling like rock stars. <laughs> um, make sure you're following us on social media. The podcast specifically is on Facebook and Instagram at Crime and Spirits Pod. On TikTok, which we're dipping our little toesies into, we're at Crime and Spirits Podcast. This is where you'll find ingredients, recipes, memes, fun videos, just kind of dumb shit, but also interesting shit, showing you how to make each drink, giving you updates on where we're at, so on and so forth dumb and interesting that could be like our whole brand that's kind of our thing <laughs> it's kind of the vibe <laughs> if you'd like to follow us personally you can find us on instagram i am at suze not susan and i am at brie underscore not the cheese and like i mentioned earlier if you're into our little indie podcast over here and we really really hope that you are please go leave us a rating and or a review on your preferred platform it really really helps us out and it really 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 makes our day i sure do and of course, if you'd like to recommend a case or a cocktail or literally anything that you want us to talk about, please. A booze, a garnish, a simple syrup. A challenge. It's, bring it's it true. on. Let's go. You can email us at crimeandspiritspodcast at gmail.com. And finally, if you are interested in becoming a monthly supporter of our podcast, there is a link for that in the show notes. Feel free to smash that link. Smash it. Okay. So as is tradition... Because we definitely need it. Got a dumb little joke. So, what did all the ghouls eat in Dracula's castle? What? Monster mashed potatoes. <laughs> I like that one. I had a different one picked out, and then I saw hilarious jokes for spooky season. I, I said, like Say it. less. Yes. <laughs> See, we're all about fall and spooky season. We're we're a couple of bitches who love a theme. We are. You can't say, give me a good theme. Let me run with it. <laughs> right. Just wait until we start throwing parties. Oh, someday. <laughs> and on that note, thank you guys for being here. We really appreciate it. If you are sipping along with us, please make sure that you're being safe. You're not getting behind the wheel of a car, getting out there, hurting yourself or others. Safety first, always and forever. My friends, we appreciate you and we love you. And we hope that you have the very best day. Bye. Bye.